Blog Talk Radio. So let's say you have to read an incredibly long email from your boss that you have to finish before the big meeting starts in 10 minutes. The B I B I L E, yeah, that's the book for me. The B I B I L E, yeah, that's the book for me. The B I B I L E, yeah, that's the book for me. The B I B I L E, yeah, that's the book for me. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. 
And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. Well, this is a special day, and um, we would have wanted to do this a lot sooner, but uh, we were all trapped in whatever's been going on for the last two years. And uh, we finally decided that we, we needed to show honor and love and respect to law enforcement here in our city, and it's a joy and a delight for us to do that. And you're probably wondering why I read Matthew chapter 27, and maybe you were wondering until I got to the final verse. Go back to the final verse that I read, which is Matthew 27:54, And it says there, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. If I had a title for the message today, it would be The Policeman and the Son of God. The Policeman and the Son of God. Now, there are a lot of dramatic characters around the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we're familiar with all of them. Uh, they're well known to us. Uh, just to remind you of some of the familiar characters that are part of the crucifixion of Christ, you could remember Peter, of course, um, who told the Lord he wasn't going to allow him to be arrested or crucified, but he was straightened out by the Lord himself. And there was Judas, the despicable disciple who betrayed the Lord, pointed him out in the night in the garden for the arresting forces to capture him. There was Caiaphas and Annas, who were both uh, high priests who led the sham mock trial of Christ on the religious side. There was a Pilate who led the mock trial on the, the Roman side, the secular side. And there was Herod the king who came along perhaps to be able to bail out um, Pilate or Caiaphas and Annas, but proved to be useless in that. There are the Jewish leaders who scream for the blood of Jesus. There is the crowd that did the same, saying, Crucify Him, crucify Him. There is Simon of Cyrene, who was conscripted to pick up the cross. There is Barabbas, who was freed, a robber, rather than Christ. There are the two thieves on the cross, one of whom was brought to salvation while he was hanging there during the very execution. And all of these uh, personalities are very familiar to us, and they're part of the wonderful drama of the crucifixion of Christ and everything that led up to it. But there's one who gets easily forgotten, and it's the centurion. And he's a remarkable character in the story because he makes this amazing and astonishing and accurate confession when he says, truly this was the Son of God. Your theology doesn't get any better than that. And interestingly enough, this is not somebody whose heritage is in Judaism. This is a Roman. This is a pagan. This is one who by law had to confess that Caesar is Lord. He was an idolater. But he makes this astonishing confession his confession is also recorded by Mark, the Gospel of Mark, 
which says in chapter 1539, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, he was right there in front of the cross because he was in charge of the execution of Jesus and the others. When the centurion who was standing right in front of Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It was something about the way he gave up his life that convinced him this was the Son of God. Luke also tells us something about the centurion. Luke 23:47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was righteous. This is a declaration of the, the true righteousness of one who was in his charge as a criminal to be executed. It's a remarkable testimony of a man that we just don't know a lot about. But it stands out in such stark contrast to the attitudes of the Jewish leaders and the people toward Jesus. Go back in chapter 27 to verse 15. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? This was a, an act of um, kindness toward the population at the Passover to release a prisoner, a goodwill gesture. He thought he could get them to take Jesus off his hands because he knew he was innocent. So he said, Who do you want? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ, knowing that Barabbas was a criminal who was a danger to the people, whereas Jesus was not. He knew that because of envy, verse 18, they had handed him over. He knew Jesus was guilty of nothing. It was pure envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, a gesture by which he was saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Jewish people wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish people rejected his claim to be the Son of God. But a pagan Roman centurion confesses the great confession that Jesus is the Son of God. How are we to understand this astonishing confession? I mean, we already understand the rejection of the Jews. They had rejected him from the outset. Oh, there was the fanfare when he came into the city on what we call Palm Sunday, but by the time the week was a few days in, 
they were rejecting him, and eventually, the very same week that they had hailed him as king, they screamed, crucify him. They were never going to believe in him. Apostle John says he came into his own, his own received him not. But what's going on with this centurion? Let me tell you a little bit about a centurion. As the name would imply, um, it seems obvious that he would be a leader over 100 men. Some say 80 to 100. This is a battalion. This is a battalion of, uh, of legionnaires uh, that this man would be in charge of. He would have a superior over him. Uh, the Roman legion made up of about 6,000 men. There would be six over 1,000, and they would be called kiliarchs or commanders. We, we meet some of them in the book of Acts. But this is a man who has a battalion that he's responsible for, and in this case, they were the battalion that were given the task of following Jesus through the trial with Pilate through to his execution. Uh, he not only was designed for war, as were all the Roman soldiers, Roman legionnaires, but once Rome had conquered a certain location, a certain province, they would then... They would then leave their military force there as a law enforcement agency. They, they would actually have a station, a fortress called the Praetorium in the case of Jerusalem, which would be like the police station headquarters. And these, um, these legionnaires who perhaps uh, had once been fighting wars with other countries were now the occupying agents of law enforcement. He would be an officer over, as I said, 80 to 100. His responsibility would be authority over them, training, discipline, order. Uh, he would be a role model for them to follow. They were very, very devout followers of Roman law, and they had literally created what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace at this time in human history in the first century A.D. There was peace throughout the entire Roman Empire. That's hard to imagine. It's hard to conceive when you've conquered so many different nations. But they were so good at law and order that they had brought about Roman peace. The effect of that Roman peace allowed them to build roads everywhere without being uh, stopped or threatened. And so they were able to move through the entire empire and spread their language and their advancement. Part of the success of the Roman Empire came down to those men who were assigned to be the local law enforcement in a given place. History tells us there were more of them in Israel than any other country because the Jews gave them the most trouble. So this would be the role of the centurion. And in particular, his job and his battalion's job was to take care of this man that the Jews wanted to be executed. And finally, Pilate, after scourging him, turned him over to them for an execution. And this man is in charge of the execution. He is a man of law and order. He is a man who acts as a military police officer. He is responsible for punishment. He is responsible for protection of those who are threatened. He's responsible for security, all those things that are part of police work. They would be a part of what they called spectacles or public events. The one thing he wouldn't tolerate is a riot. He would stop a riot, and you can see that that is what Pilate saw coming back in uh, verse 24, and so needed to intervene. 
These men were used to control the people. They were used sometimes as spies. They were clandestine. They were undercover. Uh, they did all kinds of things. They spent a lot of time uh, in the Roman Empire chasing down runaway slaves uh, and bringing them back to their masters. They chased bandits and crooks, the very kind that were crucified with Jesus. They were detached, as I said, from their traveling legions, and they were left in a location. Usually a centurion uh, would be 15 to 20 years in the Roman army before he would reach the rank of centurions. They came mostly from the common people, not the elite. They were called Vigilis Urbani, Latin for watchers of the city. They were the watchers of the city. That was their responsibility. They were also, by the way, the firefighters in that era of history. They carried weapons. They carried a cudgel, which would be like a police baton. They carried daggers. Uh, they carried daggers for hand-to-hand -hand combat. They carried a sword where you could hit at a little bit different distance, and some of them even carried spears. They had high casualty rate, according to historians, uh, because they wound up being engaged in the kind of combat um, that is hand-to-hand, man-to-man, or group to man, and so there was a very high casualty rate. They were viewed as authoritative. They were viewed as somewhat violent because they could take a life. They, they were permitted to beat people as well as to take their life under certain circumstances. They were tough. They were coarse. By virtue of what they did, they were feared by many people. They were pagan. Uh, they had no exposure historically to anything that was going on in the land of Israel. They worshipped Caesar. They had a restriction on marriage. While they were serving, they couldn't be married, which was a problem. And so there were even women provided for them as almost like concubines. They were a rough bunch. Their world was conflict. Lots of it. But in spite of such an amazing profile for a centurion, there are several of them in the New Testament. And every single time you come to a centurion in the New Testament, the Bible treats them with high favor. Very opposite the Jewish leaders. Very opposite the Jewish leaders. In fact, let me introduce you to the first one who appears in the, in the eighth chapter of Matthew. This is the first time a centurion shows up. It's in verse 5. Matthew 8, Jesus enters Capernaum, which is a city up in Galilee on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And a centurion came to him, imploring him, begging him, saying, Lord... Whoa, wait a minute here. Saying what? Lord? What did this man know? Well, look, he was in crowd control. I mean, he was aware of what was going on in the city of Capernaum. He knew it very well. It must be that he had heard Jesus speak, perhaps knew of his miracles. But he says, Lord, and then he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. He is humble. This is not how they normally would have acted. He is acknowledging Jesus as Lord and admitting his own unworthiness. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And of course, there's a reason for that, and that is because the Jews 
forbid other Jews to enter the house of a Gentile. To enter the house of a Gentile was to be unclean. And this man knew that. But he said to him, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He had a servant back in verse 6 lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, no, no, I'm not worthy of that. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So he had seen some miracles. And then he said, I also am a man under authority. As well as having authority, I'm under authority, as anybody in a ranking system knows. With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. I know what authority is, he says. And now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. What? We were into the eighth chapter of Matthew, well into the Galilean ministry of Jesus. He hasn't seen that kind of faith in Israel, ever. And it's a Roman centurion who acknowledges him as Lord, who knows he has miraculous power, who knows he has divine authority, who is humbled in his presence, and who has great faith in him. Great faith in Him as the divine Lord and miracle worker. Obviously, He'd been listening and listening without the bias of the Jewish crowds who rejected Jesus. And so Jesus' comment in verse 11 is stunning. I say to you that many will come from east and west. What does that mean? Gentiles. People are going to come from all over the world. And they're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, the kingdom of heaven is going to be populated by people from the east and west like this Roman centurion. But the sons of the kingdom, namely the people of Israel, will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a bizarre paradox that is. That it will be Gentiles who will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and not the people of Israel. They will be in the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. This is an incredible account of a centurion who had come to faith in Jesus by eavesdropping on what he had said and watching from a distance. Listen to what Luke says about this same incident. Luke 7. He came to Capernaum, verse 1, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. This is the group of Jewish elders that are going to Jesus on behalf of this centurion. This adds more to the story. And look what it says about him. He is worthy. He's, he's already, we have read in Matthew, he said he's not worthy. But they say he's worthy for you to grant this to him. Why? 
For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Amazing. How honorable a centurion is this? He loves the Jewish people. He has even built their synagogue. Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he goes through the same speech. And when he returned to the house in verse 10, the slave was in good health. He believed before the miracle. I promise you he believed after the miracle. He's a Gentile. He's part of an occupying pagan army. He's part of an alien culture. And the Romans were hated by the Jews. The Jews hated the occupying Romans. But he is a humble, generous, magnanimous believer in the Lordship of Christ, contrary to the nation of Israel. We meet another centurion in the 10th chapter of Acts. The Apostle Peter is basically told by God through a vision to go to Caesarea, named after Caesar. That was kind of the Roman capital in the land of Israel. And he meets this, he's to meet a man named Cornelius, the centurion of what was called the Italian Battalion. He uh, was part of some battalion that was from Italy itself. But notice verse 2, how it describes this centurion. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. I mean, this is another pagan who is a proselyte to Judaism who is a believer in the true and living God. Again, he is a product of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles as somebody who's just listening in. I mean, even Jesus said, it's to the Jews first and then to the Greeks when he talked about the crumbs that fall off the table. And Peter is said to go to, told to go to Cornelius. The story is just an amazing story. Go down to verse 22. Peter goes down and uh, they say to him, down to Caesarea, and they say to him, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. Again, it's just amazing how much respect the Jews had for these benevolent, generous military police. He was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message. So God, by an angel, sets this meeting up with Peter and Cornelius, and you know the rest of the story. The story ends at the end of chapter 10 with Cornelius being baptized. If you go further into the book of Acts, you get to chapter 21. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, and you remember the story. They want to kill him. The Jews want to kill Paul. They falsely accuse him of uh, bringing a Gentile into the forbidden area of the temple. So they want to kill him. And another riot starts. A mob gets together and they want to kill Paul. 
and intervening is a, a centurion again, uh, and even a commander, a Kiliarch, one who was over a thousand, and even several centurions, and even hundreds of soldiers. But by the time you go from chapter 21 of Acts 24, you've got an entire massive military entourage of horsemen and foot soldiers and people with weapons, and they're all surrounding Paul to protect him, to protect him. Because they can't figure out any crime that he did. But the Jews, as they did with Jesus, are trying to kill him. And again, commanders, centurions, soldiers, protect Paul from those who would murder him. And it goes on for chapter after chapter. And Paul has to give a testimony to Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And he's in custody for all this time. And they finally put him on a boat in Acts 27. And they ship him to Rome and it's another centurion by the name of Julius who is from the Augustan battalion, which would be attached to Caesar. And he escorts Paul. Paul is such a political hot potato that they put one of Augustus' own centurions in charge of Paul to get him safely to Rome. Why? Because he was a citizen of Rome by birth. And the Roman soldiers stopped doing any harm to him once he declared his Roman citizen, they knew they were bound by Roman law to which they were committed. He took him to Rome. And even on the way to Rome, there was a shipwreck and there were all kinds of disasters that happened. And again, it was the Roman centurion that saved his life. Every time you run into one of these centurions, he's heroic. Heroic spiritually in some way as a believer in Christ or as a protector of the Apostle Paul. And he wasn't alone. Go back to Matthew chapter 27 if you've wandered from there. At Matthew 27, there were a lot of others with him. We read about that back in verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman battalion around him. So they're in charge of the prisoner. They're in charge of his incarceration until they can get him to trial. Um, he is scourged, as verse 26 says, then handed over to them to be crucified. So the, the centurion is in charge of the crucifixion det detachment. Now they play games with him. It doesn't say the centurion was part of it, but the soldiers mock him, uh, pretend uh, that he's a king, strip him, put a scarlet robe on him, crown of thorns, put a reed in his hand as if it were a scepter, knelt down before him, mocking, hail, king of the Jews, spitting on him. And they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garment back on him and led him away to crucify him. So they were acting in a way that we don't see centurions act. When they came to the crucifixion, they were still in charge, which meant that they nailed Jesus to the cross lying on the ground and then dropped it in the deep socket. That was their responsibility. Now, how does this centurion get to the place where he says, truly, this was the Son of God? Well, first of all, a little bit of background. In 42 B.C., Julius Caesar, posthumously after his murder, was deified. And they declared that Julius Caesar was a god. 
Consequently, his adopted son, who ruled after him by the name of Octavian, also called Augustus, took on the title the Son of God. The Son of God. It would have been understandable if the Roman centurion had called Octavian or Augustus Caesar the Son of God. But to call this Jewish man being offered up as a criminal the Son of God was essentially to say, I renounce my entire worship of Caesar. He was determined to be what they called Divi Filius, divine son, was Caesar and every subsequent Caesar. But to this man, Jesus was the Son of God. How, how did this happen? Well, let's look at his confession. Let's look at his confession. Truly, verse 54, this was the Son of God. Why does he say this? Is he just playing off the idea that uh, Augustus was the Son of God? Is he just shifting religions? Or is there more to this? Go back to chapter 26 and verse 63. When Jesus was on trial uh, with the high priest, verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you who after you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. One day it will be revealed I am the Son of God, but what you say is correct. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? What was the blasphemy? That he claimed to be the Son of God. Over in chapter 27, down in verse 43. Or verse 40, first of all. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Then verse 43. He said, I am the Son of God. So it isn't that he's playing off the idea of Augustus Caesar being the Son of God. He's declaring this is the Son of God in Jewish terms. Because that's what this whole trial has been about. The crime that Jesus committed was claiming to be the Son of God. That was the blasphemy for which they wanted Him executed. The Apostle John gives us insight into this. Listen to what he writes in John 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, just as we read in Matthew, put a purple robe on him, a scarlet robe, began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Verse 7, The Jews answered him, We have a law, 
And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Believe me, the centurion heard that. He's not talking Son of God in Roman terms. He's talking Son of God in biblical terms. There were people who knew he was the Son of God. John the Baptist knew it. Chapter 1 of John. Nathaniel knew it. Also chapter 1 of John. Martha knew it. She declares it in John 11. Mark knew it. He begins his gospel declaring Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1. The disciples knew. They said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Satan knew in his temptation. Satan said, since you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, and then offered the temptation. The demons knew. The demons in terror cried out to him as the Son of God. Mark 3, Mark 5, Matthew 8. Mary knew, because the angel had said at birth, Luke 1, that he is the Son of the Most High God. Well, there, were, there were other believing Jews who knew, and there was this centurion who knew too. He knew the truth and he confesses it. And Mark says when he confessed it, he was standing right in front of Jesus, right in front of him, and he began praising God and declaring that Jesus was righteous. This is so incredible. This is the man in charge of the execution. And he's looking in the face of Jesus and saying, this was the Son of God. What did he mean by that? What, what does it mean, the Son of God? And why were the Jews so upset about that? Well, you go to John 5 and you find out. You go a lot of places, but this is when we'll do it. John 5, 18. For this reason, this is verse 18, John 5. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, it seemed rather minor, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now listen. We don't have to take Jesus' claim to be equal with God from the disciples. Somebody might say that's, that's not objective testimony, right? They follow Jesus. They love Jesus. Of course they'll say the Son of God. Okay, let's take the testimony of His enemies. His enemies said He claims to be equal with God. There was no question what He was claiming. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Which is to say, yes, I'm equal to God. I only do what God does. I only do what God does. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. I, I act exactly the way the Father acts. Verse 20, the Father loves the Son, shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. The Father holds nothing back from the Son. The Father gives everything to the Son. The Son does everything the Father does the way the Father does it. A couple of illustrations. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. He has the same creative power to raise the dead and give life. Verse 23. Or verse 22, rather. For even, not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. The Son has 
equal judgment to the Father, equal power of raising the dead, equal authority, equal in nature, so the sum of it, verse 23, all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent Him. You cannot say you believe in the true God and not believe that Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God, which is to say He possesses the same nature as God eternally. The Jews knew exactly that Jesus was claiming this, and that is why they saw it as blasphemy. But the centurion didn't see it as blasphemy. He believed it. How so? What caused him to believe? How does he come to that conclusion? Go back to chapter 27 of Matthew. How does he come to that conclusion? Back in John 8:18, 8, Jesus had said, The Father who sent me bears witness of me. How does God testify to the deity of Christ? Well, here we're going to see. What was going on? Let's go back to verse 54. The centurion and those who were with him, the rest of the soldiers, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. They came to this conclusion because of what was going on at the cross. And what was going on? Go back to verse 45 and let's see just quickly. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. All of a sudden, from nine to noon, there had been light. But at noon, the whole world goes dark. High noon. He was crucified at 9 a.m., and there was three hours of light, and there were three things Jesus said in those three hours, and other than that, it was silence. Regarding the soldiers, he had said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Regarding the thief who believed, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And regarding Mary, his mother, and John the apostle, he said, Mary, look at your son. John, look at your mother. And he was giving his mother into the care of John. So in the, in the light, he was uh, showing grace and compassion. Three hours of light, he only said three things. It hits noon when the sun should be at its zenith, and all the land, the Greek word is gay, which means the earth, the whole earth goes black. And I think it's the whole earth because God literally blocks out the sun. Roman historians, by the way, wrote of this. There is even a letter from Pilate to Tiberius, a document that talks about the darkness over the world. And the word used here is eklepo, from which we get eclipse. This is why it's so terrifying. It's high noon. No natural explanation exists for this blackness. It's, by the way, full moon at Passover, which means full sun, full moon reflecting the sun. But the sun went out, so the moon goes out. You say, how can this happen? Well, it's happened before. In uh, Joshua chapter 10, the sun stood still. In 2 Kings chapter 20, the sundials went backwards. God can move miraculously any of the bodies that He created. But why at this time? Why the darkness? 
Was God trying to hide His Son's suffering? Was God trying to show a little sympathy to Him? Was this some kind of divine protest at what the Jews and the Romans were doing to Him? No. What you have to know about darkness is pretty clear. If you read the words of Isaiah, listen to this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. The sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for evil and the wicked for their iniquity. When it goes dark, it's the day of the Lord event. And the day of the Lord event, as we saw last week, is a divine judgment. In Joel's prophecy, chapter 2, the day of the Lord is coming, a day of darkness and gloom, thick darkness, the sun and moon grow dark, the earthquakes will be great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Joel 3, the day of the Lord is near, sun and moon grow dark, the Lord roars, the heavens and earth tremble. Amos 5, the day of the Lord will be darkness and not light, gloom and no brightness, for your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You find the same thing in Zephaniah, darkness and gloom, because they have sinned against the Lord. It's the day of divine wrath. The darkness symbolizes divine wrath. What do you mean divine wrath? Divine wrath poured out on the Son of God in our place. Darkness declares divine wrath to be released in a massive scale. A massive scale. Affecting the whole planet. Punishment for sin, transgression, and iniquity. It is a day of the Lord and the Son of God is being punished for all the sins of all the people who will ever believe throughout all of human history. The one on the cross is receiving the divine wrath that we deserve. It's punishment from God. That's why the darkness. In verse 46, the darkness ends. In the ninth hour, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is another startling thing that must have fit into the centurion's confession. This is a cry of innocence. This is a scream of innocence. At the end of this massive cosmic explosion of wrath on Christ, he screams, literally. He screams with a loud voice, full power, even though he's just been punished for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe through all of human history. He's absorbed that punishment in three hours. How possible? Because he's an infinite person. And then with a loud voice, he cries out of his innocence. And remember, the other gospel writer said that the centurion said, this man is a righteous man. Pilate said that again and again. Find no fault in him. This is a righteous man. Why would a righteous man suffer? That's what the cry of Jesus meant. Why? 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 He's feeling the separation from his father for the first time in all eternity. So the soldier is seeing the wrath of God poured out on an innocent man. And then he sees something even more stunning, inexplicable on a human level. Verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. This is stunning. 
The other writer said when he breathed his last, he said, truly this was the Son of God. What, what is it about the way he died? The fact that he literally gave up his life. Do you remember he said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. John 10, 18. In full strength, full voice, he said, it is finished, John 19. Into your hands I commend my spirit, Luke 23, and willed his life to leave. Stunning. Absolutely amazing. The man had power over life and power over death. The centurion and his soldiers are watching all this. And then something more stunning. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Just take the veil from the temple. What's that about? It's 30 by 30, 4 inches thick. The veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, only a high priest could go once a year. That was the presence of God. There was no access to the presence of God. Only the high priest could go in there. Because no sacrifice ever offered access. None of the animal sacrifices. And by the way, tens of thousands of them were going on at this very day, at this very hour in the temple. More sacrifices than any other time of the year. And in the middle of all of those sacrifices, all of a sudden the temple is hit by the power of God. And from the top to the bottom, this curtain is ripped open and the Holy of Holies is thrown open. And that symbolized the inner sanctum, the presence of God and by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ, God is saying, the way to me is open. Imagine, this is 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Passover, tens of thousands of lambs being slain, which couldn't open the way to God. They could only symbolize it. So th these Roman soldiers are getting a profound lesson in divine testimony to who the Son of God is, and God doesn't even say a word. The way to Him is open through the sacrifice of Christ. And then the earth shook and the rocks were split. That always went along with the day of the Lord as well. The earth shook and the rocks were split. This is God shaking the world in a preview of final judgment. Shaking is severe. And it's the bringing down of the Old Covenant. It's the crumbling and collapsing of the old priesthood, of the sacrificial system. It's the beginning of the New Testament and the New Covenant in the blood of Christ. What a scene. And that's not all. In verse 52 and 53, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after His resurrection he entered the holy city and appeared to many. What is this? This is a preview of what was accomplished by the death of Christ. What was accomplished by His death? Our resurrection. In the next chapter, in chapter 28, he, raised, he is raised from the dead. But here, this is a preview of our resurrection. What's going on at the cross? This soldier is getting an amazing lesson in theology. The theology of the cross. The glory of the new covenant. There is one dying in His place for sin. He confesses Him to be the Son of God. He was frightened. They were all frightened, it says. You'd be frightened too. Darkness in the middle of the day. Earthquakes. 
temple veil ripping, a man controlling his own death. But the conclusion was right. Truly this was the Son of God. Now, here's the point. Is that important to say? Is it important to believe that? Listen to John. In probably the most familiar words that John ever wrote, the third chapter of his gospel. Just listen. Familiar. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, what? Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life comes by believing what that centurion believed. That Jesus is Lord. And final words from John in his epistle, 1 John. Listen to these words. 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. If you don't believe that God has declared Jesus to be his Son, if you reject that, you're calling God a what? A liar. And the testimony is this, 1 John 5.11, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's the most important confession you could ever make. Can you say with the centurion, truly this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the clarity with which the Scriptures speak to us. So deeply thankful that You have not left us in the dark, but You have given us a full revelation of the glory of Christ. So clear a revelation of His glory that even a pagan Roman soldier, the coarsest of men, had his heart opened wide and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That confession brings us forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, I just pray that no one here will reject Christ. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son doesn't have life. And we're talking about eternal life in the glory and joy of Your presence. May many make that confession even today, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's word. God's word. God's word. God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. now. He is seated at his father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Human fossils? This is Ken Ham, a missionary to our very evolutionized culture and even to the church. The world before the flood was so wicked that God judged it with a global flood. Everyone not on the ark was drowned. But many people wonder, where are all the human fossils? You see, most of the fossils we find today were formed during the flood. But we don't find any human fossils in flood layers. Why not? Well, the fossil record is mostly sea creatures. There's really not that many reptiles, birds or mammal fossils, and the few we have are found high in the fossil record. You see, as the floodwaters rose, those creatures, and humans too, could initially escape until they eventually drowned. By that point, they were much less likely to be buried. Get more answers to your questions about science and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
A fused chromosome? This is Ken Ham, and our popular life-size Noah's Ark is located south of Cincinnati. Evolutionists believe that humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor, and they think they've found the evidence. Humans and chimps don't share the same number of chromosomes. We have 46 and they have 48. That difference is not what we'd expect if evolution's true. So what do evolutionists think happened? Well, they think two of those chromosomes fused together in an ancient ancestor. It supposedly gave the line that evolved into humans one less pair than the great apes. Now, they think they found the evidence, but such an idea contradicts God's word. And we'll see tomorrow, it contradicts observational science. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter by going to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under enjoy free admission this year to the life-size Ark. Find out more at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. A mighty fortress. A mighty fortress.
Missing Telomeres. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the Apologetics award-winning family magazine, Answers. Humans have two fewer chromosomes than chimps, and that's a problem for evolutionists. To explain it, they claim two chromosomes fuse to become one, and they think they've evidence for this. At the end of each chromosome are DNA sequences that repeat. Now, if two chromosomes fused end-to-end, like evolutionists believe, the supposedly fused chromosome should contain many of these repetitive sequences in the middle of it, and evolutionists think they found them. But there's a big problem. The repetitive sequences are very low in number and have a gene in them. That means they aren't from end-to-end fusion. They were designed. Science confirms the Bible from the very first verse. Discover answers at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now, when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. I wasn't good enough, no. 
More evolutionary problems. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. Humans have two fewer chromosomes than chimps. And as we've seen this week, that's a big problem for evolutionists. So to explain it, they claim two chromosomes fused to become one. Now each chromosome has a specific repetitive... Long ages? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority. The Bible teaches the earliest people lived hundreds of years. Now, could this have really happened? Well, originally mankind was created to live forever. It's only because of sin in creation that we all die. So a few hundred years is actually a short life compared to what God originally designed. Now, ancient cultures like the Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, and the Chinese all have records of people living for a very long time, far longer than today. Why? Well, because after the flood, people still lived for hundreds of years, though that quickly started to drop off. So cultures after the Tower of Babel preserved the memory of those long ages. Get answers to your questions about science, the Bible, creation, and evolution at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Tell it. We got the truth. We 
Remember when your parents told you not to take candy from strangers? Well, those strangers now make commercials, teasing with candy but wanting to do something more perverse with your children. Take this Halloween ad from Twix, the candy bar, part of Mars Incorporated, which also makes M&M, Snickers, and cat food. In the ad, a young boy is playing in a dress when his nanny arrives, who happens to be a witch. She even dresses like one. It's the perfect disguise. Though the beginning of the commercial says this is a Halloween ad, two girls make fun of the boy in a dress and say it's not Halloween. The boy dresses like a girl because it makes him feel good, and the witch encourages him. A kid wearing a cape makes fun of the boy in the dress, and the witch blows the kid away. Literally, it looks like she kills the kid with malicious force, leaving nothing but his cape behind. The final shot is the cross-dressing boy and the witch walking hand in hand, which makes total sense. Telling a boy he can become a girl is demonic witchcraft. Psalm 106 reminds us of what happened to Israel when they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Mom and Dad, this perverse generation wants to devour your children. If you don't teach your kids right and wrong, according to what God says in the Bible, there is an enemy who is more than willing to teach them for you. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise when we understand the text. That's what WTT when we understand text, and you can find out at www.tt.com, and also on YouTube is where I got this from. That's uh, www.tt is the channel, and that stands for when we understand text. And here is one more from them. Keith Marshall, a pastor of a liberal Lutheran church in Washington state, wrote a short article for a local paper that went viral on social media. He was asked if Christians should be able to claim religious exemption to avoid getting the COVID shot. Marshall said, what does my faith in Jesus Christ exempt me from? Then he gave three examples. My faith exempts me from, one, putting my wants above the needs of others. In humility, value others above yourselves, Philippians 2, 3. Two, claiming my freedom in Christ as liberty to act without responsibility. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Three, refusing to protect the most vulnerable in our midst. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me, Matthew 25.40. Therefore, Marshall said, my religious exemption requires I receive the COVID vaccination to safeguard life and wear a mask to care for my neighbor. Brethren, he is a twister of the word. First, neither the shot nor a mask will save your neighbor's life. Second, you are under no biblical obligation, no command of God whatsoever to get vaccinated against anything. Marshall said by invoking the name of Jesus to claim exemption, you are using the Lord's name in vain. No, if you invoke the name of Jesus to command what God has not commanded, you are using the Lord's name in vain. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for making up commands. Mark 7, 7 says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, when we understand the text.
he did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. Their differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, Long ago as that was, as long ago as that was. 
a kinsman redeemer. And I found this article by John Carter on gty.org, and it's called Ruth and Ordained Romance. And this one explains what's going on in Ruth. Here it starts from here. From a Jewish perspective, Ruth wasn't a good candidate for adoption into the nation of Israel. An impoverished widow from the pagan nation of Moab was likely seen as someone to avoid or perhaps even deport. But the providence of God isn't bound by human logic or perception. As a matter of survival in Israel, Ruth gathered leftover grains from the fields of a man, Boaz, who turned to, out to be a close relative of her deceased Israelite husband. Moreover, Boaz looked on Ruth's plight with compassion and kindness. Boaz seemed smitten with Ruth from the moment they met. He invited her to eat with his workers at the mealtime and personally ensured that she have enough to be satisfied. Ruth 2:14 through 16. He instructed his workers to permit her to glean from among the sheaves, and he encouraged them to let grain fall purposely from the bundles for her sake. Thursday, excuse me, Thursday. Thus, I mean, lightened the load of her labor and increased its reward. Ruth, nonetheless, continued to work hard every hard all day. She gleaned in the field and evening. Then she beat out what was gleaned, and it was about Ifa of Barley, Ruth 2.17. That was a full half bushel, possibly enough to sustain Ruth and Naomi for five days or more, about four times as much as the gleaner would hope to gather on a typical good day. Ruth took the grain as well as the leftover food from lunch and gave it to Naomi. The Kinman Redeemer. When Ruth told her the man who had been benefactor was named Boaz, Naomi instantly saw the hand of God in the blessing. May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. The man, one of her closest relatives, Ruth 2.20. The Hebrew word translated one of her closest relatives is Goel. The Goel was a relative who came to rescue. The word Goel includes the idea of redemption or deliverance. In fact, the order in order to express the idea more perfect in English, Old Testament scholars sometimes speak as, of the goal as a kinsman redeemer. In scripture, the word is translated as redeemer and sometimes as avenger. A goal was 
usually a prominent male in one's extended family. He was the official guardian of the family's honor. If the occasion arose, he would be the one to avenge the blood of a murderer relative. He could buy back family lands sold in times of hardship. He could pay the redemption price for family members sold into slavery. Furthermore, if he was eligible to marry, he would revive the family lineage when someone died without an heir. The Golo could go do this by marrying the widow and fathering offspring who would inherit the name of the property of the one who had died. This was known as the law the right marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. The Old Testament places a great deal of emphasis on the royal goel. There was a significant redemptive aspect to the person's function. Every kinsman redeemer was in effect a living illustration of the position and the work of of Christ and with respect to his people. He is our true kinsman redeemer who becomes our human brother buys us back from our bondage to evil, redeems our lives from the death, and ultimately returns to us everything we lost of, because of our sin. Boaz would be Ruth's goal. He would redeem her life from poverty and widowhood. He would be her deliverer and not only grasp the potential of the glad turn of events, the very moment she, she learned it was Boaz who had taken an interest in Ruth. He was not only a kinsman, he had means to be a redeemer too. Naomi strongly encouraged Ruth to follow Boaz's instructions and stake exclusively in the field. Ruth did this to the end of, of the harvest season. A devised marriage. Naomi saw it as her duty as mother-in-law and to seek long-term security for a faithful Moabite girl, had so graciously proven her loyalty, generosity, diligence, and strength of character throughout the hot and difficult harvest season. And cult a culture where arranged marriages were the norm, this meant doing what she could to orchestrate a marriage between Ruth and Boaz. Naomi clearly had an intuition about Boaz's interest in Ruth. Her scheme was bold and utterly unconventional. If Naomi's plan had been known advanced by people in the community, the propriety police certainly would have been up in arms. Her plan, in essence, was for Ruth to propose marriage to Boaz. She told Ruth, wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you notice the place where he lies and shall go and uncover his feet, lie down when he 
then then he will tell you what to do. By the custom of the time, this would indicate Ruth's willingness to marry Boaz. In accordance with Naomi's instructions, Ruth came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Ruth 3, 7. Boaz was fatigued that he did not notice her until he wakened at midnight and was startled to find a young woman lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maids, for you are a glow. Ruth was following language from the blessed voice, from the blessing voice had given her Ruth 2.12. This was, in fact, a marriage proposal. This came as overwhelming and unexpected to Boaz. He said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown the last kindness to be better than the first, not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. Ruth 3, 10 13. Scripture doesn't identify the man who was Naomi's actual next of kin. But Boaz immediately who it was, and he knew custom required him to defer to the other relative. He explained the situation to Ruth, swore to her his own willingness to be her girl if it were possible, and urged her to remain at his feet throughout through the night. Nothing immoral occurred, of course, and scripture is clear about that. But Boaz, being protected of virtue, awoke her and sent her home just before dawn. He gave her a generous portion of grain as a gift for Naomi, saying, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Ruth 317. Boaz went immediately to the city gate and found Naomi's true next of kin. The two of them sat down in the presence of ten city elders and negotiated the, the for the right to be Bruce Goyle. As long as Element has not no heirs, the property he and Naomi had sold to pay their debts would automatically become the permanent possession of anyone who acted as Naomi's Goyle. By de- redeeming her property, this made the prospect extremely appealing. Naomi's next of kin was initially keen to the redeem the property, Ruth 4-4. But then Boaz explained that there was a catch. While Amalek had no surviving heir, the man who had been his rightful heir, Malam, had a left a widow. Therefore, Boaz explained, on the day you buy the field from Hannah and Naomi, you must acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased 
on it is inherited through foresight. This changed the situation because if Ruth did remarry someone under the privilege of liberate marriage and she produced any heir in Malhun's name, right to Amalek's land would automatically pass to Ruth's offspring. The only way to eliminate that risk would be to marry Ruth. The unnamed close relative was either unable or unwilling to marry Ruth, and he didn't want to make take an expensive risk for he offered the redemption rights to Boaz rather than jeopardize his own children's inheritance. Ruth forced it. Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Amalek and all that belong to Chilean and Malam. Moreover, I have required Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malam, to be wife in order to raise uh, the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off. Ruth 4, 9 through 10. Everyone loves a good love story, and people of Bethlehem, Bethlehem were no exception. As the word got out, the unusual transaction taking place in the city, the heavens of the city began to congregate. They pronounced a blessing on Boaz and of his bride-to-be. The Lord make the women who is coming into your home be like uh, Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. May you achieve wealth in Ephraim and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar born to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by his young woman. Ruth 4, 11 through 12. A blessed lineage. The blessed blessing proved the people prophetic. Boaz and Ruth were married, and the Lord soon blessed them with a son. As at the birth of this child, the women of Bethlehem gave a blessing to Naomi as well. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be a restorer of life and a sustainer in your age. For the daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Ruth 4, 14 through 15. All of that came true as well as verse 17 explains. The neighbor's woman gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So she named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. In other words, Ruth and David's great-grandmother, moreover, she actually contributed to the lineage uh, through which Christ the Messiah would come, Matthew 1, 5. That is how Ruth, a seemingly ill-fated Moabite woman who loyalty and faith had led her away from her own people and car- carried her as a stranger into the land of the Israel became a mother of the royal line that would eventually produce the nation's first great king. 
her best-known offspring would be Abraham's seed and Eve's hope and for deliver. Ruth is a fitting symbol of every believer and every and even of the church itself. Redeemed, brought into a position of great favor, with, endowed with riches and privilege, exalted by the Redeemer's own bride and loved by him with the profoundest affection. That is why the extraordinary story of her redemption ought to make every true believer's heart resonate with profound gladness and thanksgiving for the one who likewise has redeemed us of our sin. Talking about Jesus, the Christ, Messiah. And uh, that's all for God for Truth Be Told Radio. God with Yankee and Friends and the VRBLE. Check that article out at org. And it's called, once again, Ruth Ordained Romance. And like I said, here Yancey and Friends and the VRBLE. Bye for now. could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.